Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Gregory Rodriguez. I'm the founder and editor of Socolo Public Square. Um, before I tell you who, what the hell that means, um, I'm really happy to thank KCRW Berlin, our co-presenters tonight, as well as the Villa Aurora and the Tomas Mann House in Berlin and Los Angeles. And we're also supported tonight by the Daniel K. Inoue Institute in Honolulu, Hawaii. Because for some reason, the whole world is worried about the state of democracy. But we won't talk about that reason right now. Um, so here at Socolo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. We do this in two ways. We publish ideas journalism that we publish on our site, and we syndicate to 282 newspapers and magazines and television stations around the world, um, from, including the Washington Post, the Houston Chronicle, the Singapore Straits Times. Um, and we do this, and we do it for free. We also have another way, we convene events. We convene events in, in over the past since that, we're turned 15 years old on April 9th. Um, and since our founding in 2003, we have presented 563 events featuring 2,224 speakers in 23 cities, seven states, and six countries. And we do this with about six people. So, so all my employees are really, really miserable. Uh, and this is, and we're happy to say this is our fifth Sokolo event in Berlin, and we're always really, really happy to be here and impressed by the crowds here and how engaged intellectually Berliners are, and it's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, our events, the feature of, uh, one additional feature of our events is that we try to uh, create community by giving you alcohol afterwards. Um, um, it's a great business model. We give you free events and when we try to give you free booze. And so we all encourage you to stick around to speak um, with each other and with tonight's featured guests. Uh, <laughs> yes, we're still around. Uh, please check us out at, at, uh, on Twitter at, at the Public Square, where we'll be uh, live tweeting tonight. Um, KCRW Berlin will also be live tweeting tonight. Um, and um, if you haven't already, please silence your phones. And uh, again, only use it if you're going to uh, write something really cool to your friends. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce um, tonight's moderator, Mr. Warren Olney. Warren Olney is the host and executive producer of the KCRW public radio program, To The Point. He also hosted Which Way LA, KCRW's signature daily local news program from 1992 to 2016. Olney and his programs have been honored with more than 40 national, regional, and local awards for broadcast excellence. He has received Emmy Awards for reporting and anchoring and Golden Mike Awards for investigative reporting. Please give a warm welcome to an LA treasure, Warren Olney. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I uh, am so glad to be in Berlin. It's such a welcoming city. I think we all feel that way about it. And for those of us who come from Los Angeles, it's full of things that are new and different. You know, it never snows in Los Angeles. We don't, we don't have that uh, issue. I thought, because we're talking about some very serious issues tonight about democracy and uh, what it is and uh, whether it's in fact on the increase or on the decrease around the world and also whether that matters or why it matters, uh, pretty heavy stuff. And I thought I should have a joke to begin with. You know, that's what people in my position do. And I called a comedian friend of mine to say, give me a joke about American de uh, democracy, if you will. I need to open this program. He said, I can't do it. 
I said, why not? I said, why can't you make a joke about American democracy? He said, well, what we've learned about American democracy in the last couple of years is there's nothing funny about it. <clears throat> All right. I, I thought that was funny. <clears throat> I have to say at the outset that uh, Yashka Fisher was unable to attend. He, uh, he said he couldn't make it, and uh, we're sorry for that, but we have uh, managed to put together what I think in this context is an embarrassment of resources. Uh, and let me introduce the panelists, if I may, uh, starting with uh, Ted Picone, who is on my left, or my, my right, your left. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He researches uh, global democracy and human rights. He was the inaugural fellow at the Brookings Robert Bosch Foundation, a transatlantic initiative in Berlin. And he previously served as a senior foreign policy and national security advisor in the Clinton administration in the United States. He served for all eight years of the, criminal, uh, of the Clinton administration and he was in the White House, the Pentagon, and the State Department as well. Melida Jimenez is originally from El Salvador. She left there at a very young age and grew up and has flourished in Sweden, where she is head of the Democracy Assessment Analysis and Advisory Unit at the International IDEA. Uh, and IDEA stands for Institute of Democracy and Electoral Assistance. Her most recent work includes developing the Global State of Emergency Indices, which quantitatively measures democracy around the world. That's Melida Jimenez. And Stein Ringus, on the other end of the panel, is a Norwegian. He is a political scientist and an emeritus professor of sociology and social policy at Oxford. Uh, he's author of many books. I should say also he has been a visiting professor at uh, institutions all over the world. He's author of several books. They include What Democracy is For, uh, the, on, on freedom and moral government, and most recently, he wrote The Perfect Dictatorship, China in the 21st Century. Uh, so obviously, we have uh, an extraordinary uh, group of people to discuss the subjects at hand. Uh, and I'm just delighted to be able to uh, participate with them and hope that they will not wait for my questions, but uh, question each other and get a conversation going. And I'm looking forward very much to that. But the first question that we've been asked to address is what is Democracy, and one way I thought of putting that is to ask how it is that we can use the same word to describe governance as in countries as different as Norway uh, and India and Indonesia. Uh, and are there that we, uh, define, uh, defining uh, characteristics or uh, terms that we need to apply that um, are, are applicable to all uh, democracies, uh, democracies, and uh, uh, Ted, let me begin with you, uh, if I may, with that uh, question. Uh, <clears throat> when I was at the State Department, we decided to convene the first meeting of all the world's democracies, and the first question was, well, who's invited? Who is a democracy? And so we had to initiate a process to define what that meant. Now, this is a diplomatic process and not a political science process. I'm a lawyer by training. So the first thing we looked at was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, because the Declaration of Human Rights lays out for us all the political civil rights that one needs in order to have a functioning democracy. And the key elements that are defined in what this process developed are you know, free and fair elections that are monitored by independent bodies, freedom of the press, civilian democratic control of the military, freedom of assembly, of course, an independent judiciary, 
uh, checks and balances of some kind, some separation of powers. We know that democracy takes many different forms. So yes, India is different from Norway, is different from the United States, but we're all considered democracies mostly liberal democracies, because we do have this combination of features that, if you strip everything else away, have those essential elements of a democracy, even though at the local level they take different forms. Elad Jimenez, can you add to that? Or? Yeah, um, I think I'm gonna, it was a nice entry point. I'm going to try to bridge it and kind of share a little bit of how uh, International Idea as a democracy institute have been working with the concept of democracy and uh, we fully agree with the, the notion that democracy takes different form and we in our work work with a variety of countries uh, who are at different stages of their, of their kind of de uh, development in general but also in their kind of transition towards democracy or uh, developments of strengthening democracy. Um, however, we also have, like, we use a very broad definition of democracy in our work. Uh, and this is both to kind of be able to kind of actually capture all the variety and like the diversity of, of different countries and like different systems out there. Uh, but it's also to kind of have like an inclusive and kind of uh, context sensitive uh, understanding. However, we do work with the core uh, of the democracy definition, and that is. Uh, popular uh, control over decision making and in some in some sense that like political freedom etc and then you can translate that into different institutions and and processes as Ted was mentioning and then there, our second democratic principle is political equality amongst um, those exercising uh, that control and I think the combination of both having the popular control which is like the freedom to actually influence the power and the decision making and the combination of political equality is something I think that we'll probably return uh, in, in later in the discussion that actually uh, is what kind of is, uh, brings all the democracies around the world uh, into like a common uh, mission. Stan Rankins. Well, I'd start by saying that democracy is a pact between the state and citizens. And in this pact, the state promises two things. It promises order, and it promises to protect citizens' liberties. It promises two things. Now, no non-democratic system can promise both those two things. Autocracies of whatever kind, they can at best promise order, at best, but always on the condition that citizens surrender their liberty. So democracies are unique in the sense that the state makes two commitments to the, to the people. One is order, and the other is that their liberties are protected. The state, in your definition, is still separate, though, from the people. What about the idea that it derives its power from the consent of the governed, doesn't that distinction then disappear? No, the, in order for this pact to work, uh, the people have to hold power over the government. The government must be threatened by the people, that if they do not deliver on their pact, the people can get rid of the government. So uh, this pact is, contains much more than I suggested in the beginning. It also contains, of course, duties on the part of the citizens. 
but uh, the basics is that citizens can trust, or should be able to trust, the government to be an agent of order and an agent of protection of liberty. But that is conditional on this thing, the state, the government, being under the threat of sanction from the citizens. I mean, in my view, this is what the definition of sovereignty should be. Like, there's a lot of talk about sovereignty in our world today. And sovereignty should be popular sovereignty, right? Authority is derived by the people as expressed through free and fair and genuine elections that are competitive, et cetera. So to me, that is the litmus test of what a true legitimate nation state should be in the international system. That's not clearly what we have. But aren't there values basic to democracy that you have to accept, that, that everybody has to agree on, that you have to have a consensus on before you can ever get to democracy? Well, if I, 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 I'd give a second uh, definition now of democracy. Was, uh, okay. And that democracy is a culture. It is a constitutional order that sits on a democratic culture, a set of values that are shared. And uh, no constitutional order can function well unless it is supported by a democratic culture. Uh, a reasonably shared understanding of values and principles and obligations uh, that citizens share with each other. And maybe I can, I can read a little quote from one of the great authors of democracy. This is the, the late Robert R. Dahl, Professor Dahl. And he said that the, pr the prospects for democracy are good if citizens and leaders strongly support democratic ideas and values. In other words, the country possesses a democratic political culture. And then he adds, lucky the country whose history has led to these happy results. So Robert Dahl, the greatest authority on democracy, in order to explain how this harmony of constitution and culture comes around, has to point to luck, lucky the country whose history has led to these results. So, I, can I just, I mean, yeah, I, don't, sure. I think it's much more than luck, of course. I mean, these are decisions that are made by uh, citizens and leaders to say, move ahead on a more democratic path. And we've seen over decades this process of transformation toward more liberal democracy, and it's very encouraging. And we saw it particularly after the end of the Cold War. Uh, and at the heart of that, there needs to be a sense of, uh, in terms of the values of the citizens, a sense of trust uh, between citizens and between citizens and their leaders. And there needs to be an informed citizenry. In order for you to exercise your rights and duties as a citizen, there needs to be a space of somewhat neutral, objective information that's shared uh, across all citizens in order to make decisions. So, Melody Jimenez, I can't get off the subject of what is religion and, and how you reconcile these issues, the question of, of values, without mentioning religion. And, and what do you do when there's a difference of opinion as to where authority comes from, that it may not in fact come from the consensus of the people, that uh, they can govern themselves, but rather from someplace else? Yeah, and I think that's where, uh, that's where the tensions in society start, and that's where kind of the 
either the discontent or like the uh, the challenges for democracies come because then it's then then it's where uh, who uh, you start to ask who really has the legitimacy to represent and and who are they representing and that's I think a lot of the things that we're seeing uh, today is are those tensions between different institutions and not necessarily you know uh, in terms of religion but there's also like supranational bodies uh, other actors who are kind of influencing uh, a country's uh, decision-making processes uh, and I think it's actually in the meeting between the kind of the institutions and the power sharing uh, with the values where democracies kind of become alive, because it's uh, at the kind of at the end of the day, it's a little uh, the functioning of democracies and like what they are is actually coming down to are they able to embody all of these values of representation, of accountability, of transparency, uh, and I think when there are many different institutions who try to play this uh, this role, uh, then the question of legitimacy also comes in and their tensions can arise. So one further question on this basic issue. Uh, if order and the protection of liberty is the basis or the purpose of democracy, <clears throat> are there other um, competing purposes and ideas that get in the way particularly when you have a diverse population. Well, I think the religion point is particularly interesting <clears throat> because if you take just three examples that come to mind, and I, these are values, but these are rights, right? So we have a right to freedom of religion and a, and a right not to believe as well. Mm -hmm. So we have to keep that front and center. Any genuine, legitimate democracy, in my view, has to have that somehow uh, embodied in their constitution or in their basic law. But take three examples that come to mind. Iran. Iran has some features of a democracy, but at the end of the day, it's a theocracy because the religious authorities determine ultimately how government is run and how power is distributed. Or take a country like Indonesia. Indonesia has, uh, did not make Islam the only religion, it decided at its founding as a democracy to recognize six different religions. And so you'd say, okay, that's a half step toward a full uh, uh, liberal democracy, but it's an important one in the case of Indonesia, uh, I would say. Or India, which does not name any particular religion in its constitution, I would say has the most open uh, of those three uh, arena for freedom of religion. What about elections we're going to see next week? <clears throat> there's one in Russia, there's one in Egypt. Uh, they consider themselves democracies, they call them democracies. What's wrong with those democracies? Why aren't they uh, what we would call successful democracies or complete democracies? Or, or uh, where do they fall down? Well, in those cases, the electoral process is under control from above. So those who are already in power are in control of the electoral process. Okay. So it's a scam. They, I mean, you know, democracy is now the only game in town in terms of language. Even the Chinese have to be democratic. Uh, but there are lots of scams. Uh, and but what if uh, everybody believes the scam and then you have consent of the governed, don't you? And isn't that one of the qualifications for democracy? Well, it enables those in power to... Uh, say, to claim that they have the consent of the people because they um, have had elections. You know, even Hitler wanted to be elected. He didn't succeed in that. Mm. 
So he gave it up. But he tried to get himself an electoral majority behind. He never succeeded. So everyone wants to be elected because it gives them the ability to say that they have the support of the people. But we have to observe whether they are in fact elected or not. And if they themselves control the electoral process, then they are not elected. And then it is a scam. So, Melody, you have been involved in putting together a quantitative measurement of democracy. Let's turn to that. What, what do you mean by a quantitative measurement of democracy? What sort of standards do you use? Yeah. Um, and so, when we started to build that, it's a it kind of links back to your question on the election. So, basically, I think also from the work that we do uh, around the world, it's and it's also kind of a common no notion that, of course, uh, democracy is more than an election. Uh, so it's not enough anymore to just measure the election or the existence of that institution. It's actually important to measure how well are the other institutions uh, working, which is kind of part of the whole uh, democratic kind of political system. So it's not only enough that we have elections, we also need to have you know, the checks and balances on the, on the governments, but we all, and we need to have a, an active uh, citizenry, like uh, Ted was saying also in the beginning, that there are some duties re related to this. So um, from, our, from our point of view, when we started to like, put together that measurement, we didn't want to take like a minimal approach to the understanding the democracy. We wanted to take kind of a broad approach. Of course, then it made our task and our lives a bit difficult during that period. But I think overall, we've tried, what we're trying to do is to kind of uh, present kind of a more nuanced uh, picture of what's going on in a country. So you can be very strong on some some democratic institutions and on others you'll be, you know, you'll be struggling or you'll be, be challenged. Not so much only because there's just, uh, you know, the, your democracy and you're facing these challenges, but because countries overall, we face challenges of poverty, of exclusion, etc. Uh, so we try to build that kind of measurement in a broad way so be able to say, you know, there's no perfect democracy and every democracy has variations within them and how good, I mean, how good, good they're doing and how bad they're doing. So uh, in that sense, kind of, there's no, uh, there's not like a, you know, a, an end point to it. We're all kind of, we can all improve, but we can also... Uh, go back, and we can also backslide uh, back uh, like from democracy, and that are some of the things that we also notice in our data it's happening. So, so, are we? Is the world becoming more or less democratic? According to like our at least our data, we've taken a long-term perspective. And this is also not to only just be stuck on the current events or the latest headlines, which sometimes can tend to inflate what's going on, to sometimes can tend to uh, just pick on our, you know, uh, kind of the, our just natural notion to be a little bit pessimistic, a bit negative, etc. cetera. Uh, so from our long-term analysis, we are at the highest level uh, of democracies of all time. We're more democracies in the world. We've uh, even, like from 2016, we're more uh, today. So, however, there are challenges that the countries uh, are facing at kind of a national level, and that's a little bit what we're trying to do by having this broad measurement, be able to pick out, you know, these kind of more detailed uh, challenges that the different countries have, but overall, uh, there has been progress, and we are, are we don't see like a sharp decline 
uh, of, uh, of democracies in our data from a long-term perspective at the global level. So, Do you, do you include Russia and uh, e Egypt as among the democracies? Yeah, we include, we include all countries, uh, which like we have a threshold for the countries, but we include like 155 countries and those countries are part of it. So then is each of them rated? Is that how they count? Um, yeah, exactly. They have different scores for the different attributes, but they're not ranked. So they're not ranked in terms of like, you know, uh, we haven't put together into one single score. Uh, and this is a little bit part of like our vision that we can't just simplify democracy into, into one single number because there are many different variations within the country. So uh, within our data set, you will be able to see, okay, so what is kind of working within, uh, let's say then, you know, a country like Russia, like what are the levels of civil, civil society engagement? Uh, what are the media integrity issues? What are the elections? What are the uh, local elections, et cetera? So that will allow us to kind of also try to pin down and see, you know, at least from an international organization like us to see, okay, where should we work? Where do we need to kind of put in our effort? Where do we need to, uh, you know, do capacity buildings, trainings, et cetera? So Stein Ringen, would you say, Russia and Egypt don't even belong on the scale because you said it's all scam in there. Yeah, I wouldn't mm. include those now. I mean, there was, it was doubt about Russia for a while. Mm. Uh, it was doubt. Today, I don't think uh, it should be doubted. I don't think we should include Russia today uh, in uh, uh, the world of democratic countries. The, um, uh, the power of the people is uh, uh, insignificant. And the government is in control of the people, and the people are not in control of the government. The threat from the population to the government that is essential, necessary for democracy, isn't there. So I wouldn't include Russia. Now, they do have elections, um, but, but I, wouldn't, I wouldn't include that. Um, nor, I think, would I include um, uh, Egypt, which I'm getting a bit outside of my, my expertise here, but it doesn't look very much to me like an actual democracy. It looks like an autocratic system which parades in some ways uh, as a democracy under um, scam elections. Can I just add something quickly yes, in sure. terms of like why some of the countries are included? So the countries are included not because they, they're classified as countries, because we don't make that classification or typology, but it's more because we're trying to analyze what is the state of uh, democracy around the world, what are the levels of the different institutions. So uh, not necessarily by like classification, are you a democracy or not, but rather what is going on in the country, what are the... You know, is there anything, right? Because there's also countries who, who will in the future go to transitions and then hopefully with our measurement we will be able to track that kind of development where they like from very low levels of representation, low levels of participation, then start to increase and then you could see, yeah, something is happening, something is, uh, developments are uh, go moving towards democracy and in, in our work the kind of the transition towards democracy is, uh, is very important to kind of track and monitor. So, I mean, I agree, there is no such thing as a perfect democracy. They're all defective in some way or another, but some are better than others. And we can have a whole set of criteria and indicators that not only International IDEA, but a number of other researchers have developed. There's the Bertelsmann uh, Foundation has a transformation index. Freedom House does pieces of it. They look at the state of civil liberties and freedom around the world. There's varieties of democracy and index out of Sweden. There are many, many examples of this. 
trends. And if you pick which point in time to say that the trends are positive, you know, how far back do you want to go? You'll be able to see a positive trend if you go back 100 years. But more recently, if you look at the last, say, five or 10 years, there's no question that we are in a recession of freedom and democracy around the world. Doesn't mean that there are not good examples and progress being made in some countries, whether it's Colombia or Sri Lanka or parts of Africa. But there are many other cases that tend to show the opposite and kind of the net is a decline. And now you're seeing it particularly in the more established consolidated Western liberal democracies, this backsliding, this steady erosion uh, away from the ideal. Why? Well, I, I think there, that's a whole other hour-long discussion, uh, if we want to get into it. I mean, I think there are pressures of globalization that are uh, affecting people in different ways. So there are winners and losers of globalization, and that is stirring up people in different, in different ways. And uh, your word uh, about the threat of the people, I think of it more in terms of accountability, that there needs to be vertical accountability from the people to the leaders, but then horizontal accountability in terms of the institutions that check the, the different powers. Um, and I think there are various forces at play that are uh, manipulating and exploiting our more open democratic processes for rather narrow ends. And whether you're talking about the migration issue or using, uh, as I mentioned, the trade dynamics or the way social media is being used as a tool to manipulate people, all of these factors, I think, are, are leading to an erosion in democracy around the world. How does, it, uh, does immigration impact this? And, and once there's begun a slide, how do you get back? Um, I can just may mention a little bit of the research that we have in, yeah. in our Global State of Democracy report. Uh, some of the backsliding kind of research that we did, this is very initial research, so there's much more to explore and really like kind of pin down what's happening. But when we were testing uh, some of like backsliding events towards the, uh, the attributes of democracy that we have in the indices, uh, the only kind of uh, attribute which kind of actually did not uh, decline in the face of uh, modern kind of backsliding events uh, was participatory engagement, which means that like in, in these cases, then the citizens have a role and they are like one of the pushbacks that can kind of, you know, uh, also have a checks and balances role when the other ones uh, fail. And, and I think some of these, uh, some of these uh, challenges come, I think, and the challenges <coughs> that we're seeing in, in established democracies, uh, from my point of view, is can, we can also link it to maybe the fact that we've been a bit too occupied establishing all the institutions, but we have forgotten how to embody the values of them. So we've, we have, you know, all of our countries like Sweden, we have political parties, et cetera, but we've been struggling with actually kind of, are they really representing the citizens, right? And a lot of the movements that we see and a lot of the movement, movements that are triggered by the social media, it's also kind of like a pushback to be like, okay, you guys, the political parties, they're not representing us, so how are we gonna get our voice out? And then we both have uh, the establishment of new parties, but then also these, uh, these movements. And I think uh, that is a little bit, from, at least from my perspective, why some of the uh, established, countries, uh, established democracies are also uh, struggling today. Um, is it better to have multiple parties 
or as we have in the United States and some other countries, just two? No, there isn't any answer to this. This depends on the history and the tradition of each country. And democracies are and will be very different in the way they operate. And um, uh, we all agree they are they're all imperfect. There is no such thing as a perfect democracy. But they will be, in the way they operate, very different from one country to another. And what works in one country depends on historical and traditional circumstances in that country. Uh, for example, for a while, the, the, the British two-party system worked very well. Today, it works very badly. Uh, something has happened in political culture, or I don't know what. So uh, there isn't any recipe that says that democracy has to be of this or that kind. I think it's, it, it's even possible that we could think of non-electoral democracy. I mean, I don't have a, a, a really a recipe for it. But we mustn't think that democracy has been invented and that's the way it's going to be. I mean, the American Constitution invented a completely new kind of democracy. And it's not beyond imagination that we could have another kind of democracy that emerges again, which we maybe do not know today. And it's possible that there might be other mechanisms by which uh, the population holds the government under control than elections in the way we think of it today. I mean, I'll mention just one example. I mean, in mm. Britain, we have a, this very important component of British democracy, which are the magistrates. These are the, the, the lowest judges. They are, not, they are not lawyers. They are appointed by the people. They are ordinary citizens who sit and hold court, and they do an awful lot of the court work in the country. There is a pretty elaborate arrangement in the country for the selection of magistrates. They are selected from among the population, ordinary people, and they get uh, those positions, which are very important in the democratic system, and that is a procedure that works very well. So there are other ways of um, uh, um, uh, uh, selecting important persons and institutions in the democratic system than elections. And maybe we should be open enough to think about uh, you know, ways which we have not really envisaged today. Jump in on just, yeah. Yeah, just two points. This is a pretty radical idea, I think. I mean, <laughs> there are examples where you could have government by referendum, by plebiscites, on specific issues. I, I'd say Switzerland would be the most advanced in Europe in this sense. Uh, but to run an entire government based on this kind of deliberative or uh, rule by, by plebiscite, I think, practically speaking, would be very difficult. The other point would be uh, about going back to parties. I mean, parties have been the mediating force to communicate and transmit the interests of individuals and citizens into groups and then the way policies are articulated. Um, but I think in a democracy, you need at least two parties. Like, there needs to be competition. Uh, there are states like Cuba and North Korea who call themselves democracies, but there's only one party allowed. And the candidates are hand-selected by the powers that be. This is back to your point about, really, this is more of a scam. And I don't think, I think it pollutes the me real meaning of, of the term to say, oh, we had a 
revolution in 1959. That's when the people spoke. And now we, the Communist Party, get to decide everything. We control the media. You know, we decide whether you can get a job, whether what school you go to, whether you can travel out of the country. Come on, that's not... Well, then uh, you're not protecting the rights of everybody. Not at all. And so there needs to at least be some kind of competition, I think. It seems to me that uh, democracy, if we go back to the Greeks, and even the American democracy, which was designed by white property owners to uh, f function. Uh, it seems to me that diversity is a sort of enemy of democracy. And the, the more diverse we get, the more globalized we get as societies, the more difficult it's going to be to maintain democracy. I'm not so sure about that, actually. I think, I mean, there are many things that, that look like that today. Um, and you mentioned immigration is a big problem in yeah. Europe, um, integration. But, you know, we need to remember that we, in, in Europe and America now, we are, in the, we are in the aftermath of one of the worst economic crises we've ever had. And, you know, this, this crisis really hit the populations terribly. Um, uh, you know, people lost their jobs, they lost their homes, uh, uh, savings were wiped off. I mean, it's terrible, terrible. And I think there is um, maybe a, a, a tendency that diversity, immigration has been made the scapegoat for troubles that really are of a more economic nature and that go back to this terrible economic crisis that we were through and in the aftermath of which we are still living. Um, so I'm not, I'm not so sure about that diversity um, issue. And, and maybe you can add, you know, democracy is not about agreement. On the, on the contrary, it's about accepting and mastering and living with disagreement. It is a celebration of disagreement. There needs to be a kind of consensus under there, some, something shared, but there doesn't need to be agreement. On the contrary, it is, it is a system, I mean, what, another way of saying what democracy is, it's a system for managing and respecting the fact of disagreement. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Melody, that's you're I mean, nodding, that's a, nodding. No, that's a key <laughs> point. I mean, <laughs> democracy <laughs> is about <laughs> conflict. Yeah. It's just nonviolent conflict, and we try to yeah. figure out rules and ways of, of coming to some kind of agreement that we can live with, compromises, right? Compromises. Uh, and this is, now your point about diversity, uh, it does make it more challenging, I think, to try to find the, those compromises. And, um, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's inherent, a democracy needs to reflect the views of, of all different uh, citizens in the United States, it took us and is still taking us so long for our system to reflect that. I mean, to this day, the way our voting system is operated through gerrymandering, voter ID laws that are so restrictive, we have continued to live out this problem from our long history of repressing basic citizen rights of, of voting. Uh, so I think we have in the United States a major defect in the way we uh, exercise democracy. And on the other side, one last thing on diversity, a federal system I think does allow for some more room at different levels of government to manage that kind of conflict. So you break it down into specific uh, areas or provinces or towns that decide how to manage those issues, that helps. 
Melody, how important are the leaders? We've all made these distinctions between the, uh, the people and the leaders. Uh, is that a, a, an important distinction? Or do the leaders have to be, have to somehow organically come out of the people? Or, it, or certainly there are a lot of countries where you could, make a, you, could, you could make a distinction, the United States having been one even at the founding, when, as I say, sorry we're talking about the United States so much, but uh, uh, it, it's become obviously a, a paradigm for, uh, for democracy. Yeah, and I think, I mean, for some of the democracies who have challenges, I think one of the key real issues is, is the alienation uh, in elites. And I think that is actually a lot of like the new kind of uh, the new kind of movements or the parties or the way that people are kind of uh, not satisfied with democracy might actually, if we kind of start to dig, dig down, it can be so that the political elites have been kind of alienating themselves not only from the people, but also from uh, kind of the democratic system. And I think in that, in those, kind of in those settings then, of course, the po a political leadership needs to actually represent truly the population in a way, right? Uh, not only uh, uh, opinion-based, but it needs to be kind of open uh, so that kind of everyone can also be represented, not just, you know, uh, uh, pre-selection, right? Because that, in a way, is also a mini-scam, right? If we, we don't, we, we can't access the, the decision-making. Like, if I can't run for, uh, you know, for, for office, uh, then, of course, yes, I live in a democratic system, but what are the uh, informal uh, kind of barriers for me to, to do that? And I think, and I think uh, we're, in terms of, like, if we link it to, to diversity, I think we're actually not, uh, maximizing the use of democracy that we can have because as we were saying that democracy is a system to manage conflict it actually is a system that can successfully could successfully manage diversity and could be kind of really like you know uh, yeah I can run for office as well right in, and uh, not only you know a certain uh, certain uh, elite in a country um, however I think our, our inability to actually understand diversity and what it means in a democratic system has made kind of like these tensions in a society. And it might be so that I mean, we need to just have a more open mind that in fact the, the reality is a diverse reality. And now we need to adapt and we need to like modernize our institutions and everything towards that new re like reality. Stein Rangan, you said at another place at another time that the danger comes from the top. What do you mean by that? And are there examples at the moment of danger coming from the top? <laughs> Just popped into my no. head. Can I, can I hijack that question and, and re reply on a danger coming from below? I mean, everyone knows what I didn't say. Uh, and because I have a shocking statistic which I want to give you. And this is survey evidence, it's in, from America, according to which 60% of Democrats and 63% of Republicans would be unhappy if their children married someone from the other party. Now, that is a shocking statistic. <laughs> and not only that, if we go, this was in 2016, if we go 40, years or so back in America, no such sentiment existed. So this is a shocking state of affairs, and it's new. This is, and, th and this is democratic culture that is eroding. Now, that's America. 
I come from Britain. We have exactly the same in Britain, in Brexit. You know, in Britain today, we all go around, I know it, I do too, and we think about other people in terms of how they voted in the Brexit referendum. <laughs> and if they voted the way we good people think they say should not, we think they are, you know, subhuman species. I mean, th this is true, actually. This is true. And even, you know, I'm aware of this, but I'm caught up with this. And we think of other people in terms of where they stood on Brexit. Now, this is a form of polarization, which is shocking, and which is new, and which is an erosion not of constitutional arrangements, but of the culture underpinning. You know, not about agreement, but about the ability to respect disagreement, mm -hmm. manage disagreement. And that we, for the time being, we are in an awful state in this respect. And once this democratic culture starts to erode, it's very difficult to get back again. How important are the United States and Britain in this context, and if, in fact, democracy is in trouble in those countries, what does it mean for the rest of the world? Why yeah. does it matter? I mean, I think in part because <coughs> of our history around uh, this whole idea of democracy, uh, and because over his time we became kind of the leaders, so-called, of the free world. Uh, so I think it's that uh, baggage, good or bad, that uh, puts the U.S. out there in a higher or different place. But I think what you're seeing now in other parts of the world, in other parts of Europe, is this backsliding, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, but also in other parts of Western Europe. And I think that is, um, so it's not just an American problem. Uh, it is maybe this, as I said before, byproduct of globalization. Uh, the other point I wanted to make that relates to diversity is the majoritarian versus minority uh, factor, because we're seeing this, uh, you know, if you think of traditional democracy, it means that the majority decides, right? But then we have all these protections for individual and minority rights, and that's what makes a democracy a liberal democracy, and that's what I fear is being lost in the current debate. And people say, well, the American people voted for Donald Trump. That was a majority view. We have to respect it. But when you actually think about it, only 25% of the American voters actually voted for Donald Trump. So it's not the majority of American people that vote. It was a minority that voted for Donald Trump. So we have to be careful even in the language that we use about who he represents. Uh, and then uh, you also see the reaction to it. Uh, which is uh, increasing civic activism, that's quite inspiring and, and hopeful. But I agree, this, uh, the statistics around the hyper-polarization going on in American society is very, very worrisome. And I would add one other thing, which is the way money has infiltrated in politics, both uh, dark money and public money. Uh, actually, what I would say is there's not enough public money. This should be, this is the sacred act, right, of democracy, is that we vote and the whole process is being funded by private interests uh, who are buying, come on, who are buying politicians to pursue their own narrow self-interest. 
This, to me, is what is rotten at the core of our democracies that has to be addressed. So, Melody, what about this, this factor of only 25% of the people in the United States, eligible voters in the United States, actually electing Donald Trump? What does that say in terms of your quantitative measurements about this very important element of democracy, which is you have to have citizen engagement and citizen involvement? Mm -hmm. I mean, from our perspective, of course, it kind of says that there's a lot, a big group in in the United States who doesn't feel represented, or who are not represented, yeah. and of course, then there are some institutional uh, changes that needs to be done. But the, I think the I think one of the most important things is not only okay, so we can say you know that yeah, the we can complain about the U.S. electoral system, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think what's more important is actually what uh, Stein was saying in terms of like it. What happens when our institution doesn't work, it, the outcome of that is when then citizens lose uh, the faith on democracy. And I think that is when it's kind of, yeah, what is the role of the citizens then? And I think that is some, a question. I mean, I don't, I don't have an answer to that. I think that is a question that remains to be seen. What will the role of the citizens be in the US when, the, when they, they don't feel represented enough? by their political leadership, for example. So, Stein, should we then, in the United States, in Britain, be looking at new and different ways of having democracy? Of, of, should we begin to experiment with new models, as you suggest? Uh, obviously. Uh, and the, the money issue is, uh, is crucial. Yeah. And uh, there is a solution to that, mm -hmm. uh, which I and others have, uh, have advocated. And that is that elections should be funded by, with public money, say that public money should be given to the citizens in the form of vouchers, and citizens give it to politicians. So citizens, it's public money, but citizens got control of the money, and they decide uh, how it is distributed among politicians. Obviously, there needs to be rules and Is so there on. any place where they do that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not yet. <laughs> not yet. But. In the United States, that's not going to happen. Nothing like that's going to happen. Right. Because in the United States, you have an institution called the Supreme Court, which has taken upon itself to protect money over democracy. And, 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 and the dealings of the Supreme Court in the United States today is absolutely outrageous. The institution which is supposed to s protect democracy, that's what it's for, has taken upon itself the role of protecting the undermining of democracy with money. The spending of, democracy, of, of money is free speech in the United States, according to this. That, that's, that's the bizarre theory yeah. that the Supreme Court has fallen yeah. uh, into the trap. Yeah, of. and that corporations are citizens, in a sense, yeah. because yeah. they have yeah. free, which, which free is, speech rights. Which is completely bizarre. <laughs> but <laughs> but those, those high priests on the Supreme Court have said, that's what it is. It isn't. I mean, giving money is not speaking. I mean, in the English language, this has nothing to do with one another. <laughs> but those high priests have the power to decide that that's the way it should be handled. But if we have checks and balances, why can't the Congress then uh, enact legislation that uh, overturns what the Supreme Court has ruled? They could. Uh, they have the powers, they have the constitutional powers to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, political thinking in the United States has 
fallen into a, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, a situation where the role that the Supreme Court has taken upon itself, which is much more than it should have in the Constitution, is being accepted. The Congress could easily solve this, but it isn't within practical comprehension in American politics today to, uh, for Congress, or the president for that matter, uh, to put the Supreme Court in its place. So it could be done. Franklin Roosevelt did successfully. Uh, he subdued the Supreme Court. Well, he didn't pack it, though. No, but he subdued it before, before, so he didn't need to pack it. He had a compliant Supreme Court before he had made any appointment of, mm -hmm. of judges, of, 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 of justices. So it can be done. It, it can be done when citizens mobilize and push their politicians to change the law. And that can happen. I mean, it's up to citizens. There's nothing wrong with democracy that citizens themselves can't fix. That's the beauty of democracy. So, and there are groups in the United States that are mobilizing and fighting very hard to change Citizens United. I was on the phone just this week with a candidate for Congress in Florida who said that that is one of her principal goals when she gets, if she gets to Congress. Uh, she's running in a red district. She's a Democrat running in a Republican district, but we're in a year of change and there's some hope she can win. And she said, I'm gonna try to push this through. So there are, it's in the air. Okay. There's discussion and recognition of the problem. We have arrived <laughs> at the point where we have uh, gonna give the, the audience an opportunity to participate. That's exactly right. This is the part of tonight's program where we get to take questions from all of you for our incredible panel tonight. There are two of us going around with microphones. If you could please raise your hand, we will come to you. Please also say your first and last name before your question. And this part of the program will be recorded and published online at Socolow Public Square org tomorrow morning. Um, also, before we do start questions, please remember to stick around for the post-event reception to have drinks and continue this discussion with our panelists. Bianca has the first question in the center. Hi, so my name is Addie Cross, um, and I've used the Global Democracy Index in my classes, and I've always wondered um, how do you take into account the rights of women and marginalized populations when you're measuring for democracy? Um, so in our measurement, we have included, uh, for example, a gender equality uh, sub-indices in, in order to be able to capture that. And uh, I just also want to add that our uh, indices are based on secondary data, so we have collected a, a lot of data sources. But it's been important for us to include elements of, uh, of gender equality, but also representation of minorities, etc. And I think uh, if from my position, I'm, I'm, I'm in a very lucky position where international idea takes that broad approach to, to democracy the definition, and it is within our mandate to be able to have that data and actually pick it up. But uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's easier said than done in terms of like data availability, but we are uh, trying to kind of make that type of distinguishes, uh, kind of those, pick those uh, things out as well, because those are important to see, you know, what are the levels of those uh, elements in the world. Just, I would say one sentence, which is uh, gender shouldn't be seen as a broader definition of democracy. It is central. It's called equality. Equality of women and men. I mean, why is that even controversial? And it should be front and center of any definition of democracy. Next question is on your right. Hi, my name is Emily Lines. I'm here on behalf of Democrats Abroad. Um, I wanted to come back to your early point about how democracy is about, they work because the politicians have a fear of the, of the people. Um, and going to the US example, um, looking at political participation, voter 
participation. It's been fairly low in the last election, as you mentioned, it was 50%. Um, do you think that in the past, um, the reason that some things have not changed is because the politicians just weren't afraid of the constituents? They were not afraid that they would actually show up and vote and kick them out of office if they weren't happy with what they were doing? Yes, I think that's uh, absolutely right, that um, it is essential that citizens participate in elections, but not only in elections, in the constant conversation that goes on between elections, um, in making their views known and putting pressure on, on their politicians. So I think this constant engagement from the citizenry is important. Now, America's always had low voter participation. It's very low now, but it's not new that they have had low voter participation. And um, um, that doesn't mean that uh, those who are in office are not threatened by the election. They, they can still be threatened by the election, even if participation is low. So um, uh, the, 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 that essential is still there. Um, but I think the, the, the participation is, is very important, um, and not only in elections. And let me just add, if you take the, the Brexit referendum in Britain, which is another area where there was a, a majority result which does not reflect the majority in the population, Young people did not participate in, in the referendum. Now, if young people had participated on the same level as old folks, such as myself, uh, it would have been a different result. And uh, I was out there uh, immediately afterwards and saying to all those young people, I've been walking around for a long time now, saying, oh, elections doesn't matter, it's all the same. No, it isn't. Elections really do matter, and voting does matter. And after that uh, referendum in Britain, no one should ever again say that it doesn't matter to vote. Next question. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Sophie Pontschinger. I work for a small think tank called the Progressive Center in there in the Democracy Lab. So I work on democratic innovation and was really happy to hear what you said about maybe new forms of democracy emerging. I have a question uh, because I just read a book which is called How Democracies Die, and they talk about parties and established parties being gatekeepers against populist parties emerging. So we didn't talk that much about parties, and I would love to see especially your opinion on what do you think about the emergence of new parties, which are network parties, for instance, on the left or on the right, and what role could the established parties have, especially because sometimes they're not even in the Constitution, no. such as in the US. Was that a question to me, was yes. it? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, on, on young people again, you know, the uh, a constant complaint is that young people are not interested in politics. It's not right at all. They're very interested in politics, but they are not engaged by traditional party politics. So the political or political parties are not very good in engaging young people who are politically motivated. So that suggests that we should look to other kinds of organizations for political mobilization. Now, a difficulty is that some of the ad hoc uh, uh, organizations or actions that young people tend to be very interested in are not durable. Uh, they come and go. So they, don't, they can't play that role in the uh, intermediate system between citizens and the state that parties have played. So uh, you and others <laughs> need to think very carefully about how you can find new forms of political representation which have enough constancy 
to be there as permanent well, channels of interest, but also permanent uh, 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 arrangements of threat uh, of the politicians. And I think durability is there, something that is quite important. But then when it becomes durable, it <laughs> tends to become a bit boring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then it doesn't mobilize. So, it's a, so you, have a, you have a big job there. <laughs> Next question on your right. Hi, uh, this is a question for everyone. I'm Parker Thomas. I'm from Pennsylvania's uh, go to Susquehanna University. I'm studying here right now in, at CIE e Institute. Um, I would like to ask, um, in recent light of the uh, Cambridge Analytical um, uh, <laughs> revelations, um, do you see the methods used that were very personalized and privatized um, directly towards individuals um, to get either out the vote or to deny the vote in this case um, as a threat or a challenge um, for in the future to democracy. Um, and this is for all of you. Um, and in respects to that too, where a technically either a company or a party um, can influence then the uh, the ability for uh, individuals and citizens to come out um, in respect to what you said, um, that the citizens can easily change what is, uh, what is occurring right now with the monetization of politics. Um, does this bring such a challenge to that then? Um, and how can we overcome this? Well, I mean, I think looking broadly at the whole issue of, of digital space and its impact on politics. I mean, I think we, the citizens and our representatives, are way, way behind the curve in actually regulating uh, these companies and uh, all the uh, various instruments. And we're now just waking up and catching up, but it's still going to take a long time because it's so uh, widespread. If you think about the impact of digital technology on elections, number one, and that's front and center in the Facebook and Cambridge case, uh, we're seeing the uh, manipulation of data that people turn over knowingly or unknowingly uh, and being used by third parties for uh, persuasion tactics. Uh, obviously, there's a problem of transparency, there's a problem of consent. Uh, the fact that um, actors are trying to influence the way you vote, to me, is bread and butter. Like, that's what happens in democracy that's pretty hard to avoid. It's the lack of transparency that I have a problem with. But there's a much bigger issue, I think, which is the direct interference by foreign powers in domestic elections, um, the lack of transparency about who they're funding, who they're not funding. Uh, I think this has got to get, con uh, we've got to get control of this issue uh, as well. We have a massive invasion of privacy. Uh, you all in Germany have a little higher, and I'd say in Europe, um, protections of your privacy. We have much lower levels in the United States, and that is another threat uh, that I think we should be cognizant of. And then there's the whole issue of the way the internet is governed uh, at the international level, and there's a real fight going on that we don't hear about that much between the Chinas of the world that want a totally controlled system and very much uh, balkanize country by country, and a Western view, which is multi-stakeholder, global, open access to the internet. I mean, the internet has to be treated like TV or radio or podcasting. I mean, it's a medium 
that's in the public space, and it's critical to any democracy. So we, we really need to make sure we get much better policies in how that space is governed. Next question. Yes, I'm uh, Helmut Anhoy uh, from the Hertie School of Governance. Uh, I have a question for Melida and um, for, for Stein. Since we are in Berlin, uh, what's your assessment of democracy in this country? And um, a question to Ted. Um, looking, don't focus on the Trump personality and the Trump administration, but in the medium term, the next five to 10 years, what are the prospects of democracy in America? Um, so I can start, I think. Um, I mean, from, uh, from my perspective, actually, the, the, uh, and the question of like, what is the state of democracy in, in, in Germany, that is actually a question for, for you. It's not necessarily a question that needs to be answered by like a simple, single number or by another institution or by externals. It's actually really, at least from, our, from the way that we work with democracy building and supporting democracies, it's like, what, what, is, what is the state of democracy from your point of view and what are the dialogues that you're having? So in that sense, I'm gonna like pass on that question because I don't, I don't think that I am in the best position to, to say what is the state of your democracy and that is also a little bit like the way that we work uh, in terms of building and supporting democracy, uh, where I come from. Next question is on your right. Oh, wait, 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 oh, we wait, haven't finished. Like, yeah, it's just three questions. <laughs> okay, well, I'll answer. I, democracy in, in, in Germany is sound. It's fine. It's good. Um, <laughs> uh, it works very well. I also, you know, I saw what Angela Merkel said yesterday about the new government. Okay, it's taken a bit of time to get the government up and running, but fine. What she said about the program for the new government and what she said she hoped for this legislative term was that they would be able to overcome uh, the danger of polarization. Uh, I think it's very significant that that is recognized from the top. There are other countries, which I will not mention, where polarization, the, the, the overcoming of polarization is not on the, from the top is not on the agenda at all. Um, Germany is not an extremely polarized country in, the, in terms of polarization these days. Still, the leader here says this is what we must aim to overcome. I thought that was significant, and I thought the, the divine Angela should be given full credit for that. <laughs> I, I can't answer your question without talking about Donald Trump. I, I just can't, uh, because... Uh, he is setting in motion a certain set of, and, and articulating and behaving in a way that really undermines the elements, the norms of, of democracy that we've lived with. And I think the question is how much damage will be done. And I think uh, we in the United States are learning that our Constitution only says so much about these situations, that we've developed a set of practices and norms of behavior that when you actually come down to it, cannot be contested. The president has a lot of authority to damage and change those norms. And the uh, question is, is it a four-year phenomenon? Is it an eight-year phenomenon? And how much damage will be done? That's one part of the answer. The other part is what I mentioned before. The money in politics is really corrosive, and I don't see that changing. I mean, Stein is absolutely right about the Citizens United and what needs to happen. There are also some polls showing uh, that younger views, younger American views of democracy are quite uh, weak. 
and worrisome. Um, a third of Americans, not just young people, have said in recent surveys that they would uh, support the idea of a president having, uh, ruling without having to bother with Congress or the courts. A third. This is a big flag, a red flag for me. And it says something that people are maybe tired of uh, all the work that democracy requires. Democracy does require a lot of work, and it's slow and deliberative. And I'm, I'm with the fast pace and everything, instant gratification on your phone, I'm worried that these things aren't coming together. Could, could I just make one point? You mentioned whether it will be a four-year or an eight-year uh, experience that we're having with Donald Trump. There's the possibility that it will be less than four years. And more and more people are thinking about that. And the consequences of that, it seems to me, would be really extraordinary in the United States and elsewhere. Um, last question, but if you did not have a moment or a chance to ask your question, then uh, we'll be, you are more than welcome to continuing to ask your questions during the, per, uh, during the reception afterwards. Uh, last question right here on your right. Thanks. Um, Tom O'Donnell. I uh, teach here in Berlin uh, about international affairs and uh, development. Um, uh, when I teach about these issues, the only way I can explain it to my students is quite different. It's historically in the sense, and then you see very much it's a matter, uh, these institutions are a matter of antagonisms that existed, uh, class antagonisms, mm -hmm. that, you know, there was liberalism, which was one thing, putting limits on the king. Then there was democracy in the sense of, you know, everybody wants to say the working class, especially here in Germany, the working class and women and so forth. But there's certain times when some of the classes participating really don't have a future. I mean, the class is dying. So in the United States, the greatest threat to our democracy ever was uh, before the Civil War, the slaveocracy couldn't compromise anymore, couldn't accept compromises, and it went outside democracy. Mm -hmm. And that's what Lincoln said was one of the two main uh, ends of that war, was to preserve a democracy that didn't exist anywhere else. So I, I think about, and if you could answer from this perspective, um, now we have a situation where early in uh, the last century, the, the farmers and servants were the major, largest classes in the country, and they're basically gone. The working class was the biggest section, the industrial workers around 1950, they're headed to a few percent of the country too. And, and whole sense, what, what do we do about this, especially when there's sections of the business class that have no really do have no future and other sections have come into being? What do you do with these sections uh, and a democracy? It's a great question. Uh, it really is. I mean, it comes. What comes to mind is is the gig economy. All the people who are entering the workforce with nothing like uh, what unionized workers had, or even non-unionized workers had in terms of salary and pensions and benefits and all of that. And I think that's going to have an effect on our politics. I think that those, uh, but they're not organized groups, right? They're self-employed. Most of these people and. They need to figure out how to organize themselves. Uh, there's talk, of course, about, well, there's pressure on minimum wage. I think that's in play. The affordable health care debate in the United States represents, I think, this understanding there needs to be a, a, a minimum threshold of health care for every citizen, which we still don't have in our country. Uh, I think those are the bread and butter issues that are really going to drive, but it's much more disparate, as you said. And right now, it's broken into this rural-urban divide. Uh, or the you know cosmopolitan coastal elites versus the middle of the of the country. I don't really buy that necessarily. I think it is a representation of um, 
the elites have gotten too far out there and do need to come back and represent the people uh, more and have these kind of conversations. I think there's um, some revitalization going on within at least the Democratic Party that I see that's encouraging. Um, maybe I can just add to that. I, and I, th I think just linking back to what you were saying before, but democracy actually requires a lot of work. And I think that is uh, a little bit where we need to do more work and specifically political parties need to do more work. Who are like the, the voters? Who are they actually representing today? And not like, you know, historically, but actually who are the, you know, who are the youth today? Who are, who are everyone in society today? And I think here, because of, uh, you know, a lot of reasons, we, there, you know, we haven't just done our homework. Uh, everyone in society haven't really done our homework to really identify, you know, the different interests and where, where are the roots, like for like the identity basis for those now in the, in, in today. Because, yeah, it, it has changed. And I, don't, I think, unfortunately, some democratic institutions have not changed with society. And I think that is uh, something that we need to speed up and uh, do our homework. So I'm sorry, before we do close, because we are right, right, just right out of time, unfortunately, um, I would like to thank our co-presenters this evening, KCRW Berlin, the Villa Aurora Tomas Mannhaus, um, as well as the Daniel K. Inouye Institute for supporting this program and making it all possible. I'd also like to thank all of you for coming. And please, again, if you didn't have a chance to ask your question, we're continuing the conversation just right here in the lobby um, where you can ask more questions of our panelists. Please grab a glass of wine, a beer, um, and enjoy the evening. And finally, a big final round of applause for our panelists this evening. Thank you so much.